Welcome to A Vague Knowledge of Everything. I am Rosie. And I'm Hope, and I brought a sweatshirt, even though I'm already hot mad. (laughs) My house is really cold. And I was like, oh, I should bring one. And then I started, like, going through, like, Rosie and I were doing a pre-recording debrief, and I already got sweaty. (laughs) Well, that'll happen, because we are talking about... The Olympics! Pew, 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 pew! Yay! And sort of not yay, because of a lot of bullshit. So turns out the Olympics are fucked. <laughs> it's it's so bad. It's just so bad. There's people working on my house right now and I have my big earphones on so I don't know how loud I am, but I hope I scare them off a little bit. Um so yes, we are going to talk about the Olympics because there's a lot of stuff coming up where they're doing like unsavory things specifically to people of color and women. Which is not great. And I was thinking, hmm, I bet there's more to this. Like, this isn't the first time the Olympics have been uh, unsavory. What? And it turns out I was right. <laughs> uh, what? What are your it's, feelings? It's about done the been fucked up. <laughs> it done been uh, fucked up. But like, generally, how do you feel about them? How did you feel about them before you know all of this shit started coming up? To be honest, I've never been particularly interested in the Olympics, so I think I tend to hear about it when either someone's, like, really fucking amazing at something and, like, they get a lot of press around them. Um, Like, like I know who Simone Biles is because of all of her amazingness, Uh, you know, and, and that's kind of... Yeah, I th- think that's kind of my relationship is that when it becomes a news story, that, that then that's something I've heard more about. Like, I I mean, I've I, I know more about Tanya Harding just because of like that scandal. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know more about the whole situation. But I don't really have I'm not I'm not someone who watches the Olympics really or really keeps up on it. I mean, I, I kind of think that. I guess it's a cool thing to have sporting events between countries. I think it's a cool cooperative thing in theory, but I guess I always assume that it was kind of fucked up. So, yeah, I'm a sucker. I am a sucker for the Olympics. I love watching (laughs) them. I have memories of watching them when I was little with my mom. because She really likes watching the ice skating and the gymnastics and stuff. Like we're a sports watching family anyway. So my parents, my mom knows all the words to the Canadian national anthem from watching so much hockey. So like we would tune into all the winter games. We would watch um, hockey and we love watching ice skating. And of course, like Michael Phelps was at the 2008 Beijing Olympics whenever it was like he got it by like a nanosecond or whatever that was. I remember watching that. I was 16. So that was pretty exciting. I just, oh, and I'm a sucker for the the opening ceremonies. There, I sorry, I just had a memory related to the Olympics, uh, the Beijing Olympics specifically. When I was visiting Beijing years before that, they took us to, uh, like, they took us to see sort of some homes of like regular Chinese people which was like it was interesting but on the other hand also like this is really awkward that we're just like walking into people's (laughs) homes and they're trying to just use the internet and do their laundry and stuff Mm -hmm. but uh but then what we were told was 
this whole block is getting demolished because of the Olympics. <laughs> like literally yeah. that was a thing. And we were like, and I guess that the tour was, I, I'm not sure it might've been so that they got some like money out of that before their houses got destroyed. I have no idea, but I just remember it being like, what the fuck? Like, that's so mm-hmm. terrible. I didn't know the Olympics destroyed people's homes. So Yeah, I remember that too with Beijing. I think they built that big bubble dome or whatever it was, and it's just sitting there now. Yeah. And they knew that was going to happen. Like, it was just built for the Olympics. So, I to finish my thought real quick, <laughs> I love the opening ceremonies. They make me emotional. Because if there's good music behind something and like performance art happening, I'm going to get I'm going to get teary. That's just who I am. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. But it's a little embarrassing sometimes. (laughs) And I just love watching them. And for a while, you know, in my earlier, more naive years, I was like, wow, this is so nice. Like America comes together for this you know, moment <laughs> when we're all like rooting for the same team and there's like, like we're all just one, we're all just America. That's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, very privileged way of looking at something that uh, is not meant for everyone, as it turns out, which is really heartbreaking and unfortunate to find out later in life as an adult. But so we are going to be talking about the Olympics. And I think this is going to end up being a small series because when I was doing research, it's such a long history and there's so much to unpack. Like there's so many different facets of it. So I have this timeline that I got from history.com and a couple of other offshoot sites. And I think I'm going to try to just go through it as best I can and try not to gloss over anything. Okay. So I'm going to try to keep these as close to an hour as possible while finishing thoughts and all that kind of stuff. Cause I, th- I feel like this is going to be a long series talking about the Olympics. Okay. So obviously everybody knows the Olympic game started in Olympia. We're going to go way back. We're going like, we're going to go origin story Olympics for this. Ooh. So like I said, most of this is from history.com. Um, the first written records of the ancient Olympic Games date to 776 BC when a cook named Corobius Carub- won the event, a 192-meter foot race called the Stade, the origin of the modern stadium, to become the first Olympic champion. It's generally believed that the Games had been going on for many years by that time. Legend has it that Heracles, the Roman Hercules, son of Zeus, and the mortal woman, Alcamene founded the games, which by the end of the 6th century BC had become the most famous of all Greek sporting festivals. So, And just to uh, clarify, the Olympia that we're talking about is in Greece, not the capital of Washington State. (laughs) (laughs) I looked up up where Olympia was, and I always forget that Greece is like a huge nation. (laughs) And I was like, I wonder if I was close when I was over in Greece. I was not. I was not anywhere close. I was on the full ass other side of the country. <laughs> well, whenever I think of Olympia, I always think of Washington State because that's the capital. Um, fun fact for anyone who thought it was Seattle, it's not. Oh, that's, so. oh, that's cool. Uh, in Twilight, they, there's a coven of vampires called the Olympic Nomads because they live in the Olympia region of Washington. So, oh. um, 
The ancient Olympics were held every four years between August 6th and September 19th during a religious festival honoring Zeus, which why? Why would you want to honor Zeus? <laughs> well, September 19th was also my wedding date, so maybe they just knew that was going to happen. It's all Let's about me. my birthday. That's Virgo season. That is a uh-huh. great time to do things. <laughs> it's the best time of the year, except for Halloween. <laughs> um, so obviously it's named for the location at Olympia, a sacred site located near the western coast of the Peloponnese Peninsula in southern Greece. Say that five times past fast no (laughs) peloponnese peninsula um the influence was (laughs) the influence was so great that ancient historians began to measure time by the four-year increments between olympic games which were known as olympiads the first modern olympics took place in 1896 in athens and featured 280 participants from 12 nations competing in 43 events since 94, the, 1994, the Summer and Winter Olympic Games have been held separately and have alternated every two years. 2020 Summer Olympics were delayed a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which will be held from July 23rd to August 8th, 2021 in Tokyo, Japan. So they start tomorrow, sounds like. And I also looked it up, and they're going to go back to being... So there's going to be a 24 Olympics and then a 28 Olympics. So they're not doing anything different in terms of the years except for this one so it's going to go back to being on the same as an election year which i always thought was really convenient the olympics and the elections are on the same year (laughs) okay so uh the first modern olympics featured the first marathon which somebody ran from i think it was athens to marathon greece to send a message and as soon as they got there died and then we said you know what we should commemorate that and have other people run the marathon <laughs> it's so dumb why would you Fuck yeah that? this guy died let's do it <laughs> uh yeah so i don't understand that i i um I, I would just posit that it was probably a bunch of uh men who were arranging oh, this yeah. and uh oh yeah <laughs> And that they all thought, oh, I wouldn't die if I did that. But you know. Oh yeah, no, women weren't allowed in until for a really long time in the Olympics. Um, after the Roman Empire conquered Greece in the mid second century BC, the games continued, but their standards and quality declined. In one notorious example from AD sixty seven, the decadent Emperor Nero entered an Olympic chariot race only to disgrace himself by declaring himself the winner even after he fell off his chariot during the event. <laughs> okay. All right, boomer. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Uh, in AD 393, Emperor Theodosius I, a Christian, called for a ban on all quote-unquote pagan festivals, ending the Olympic ancient Olympic tradition after nearly 12 centuries. 12 centuries. That's a long-ass time. It would be another 1,500 years before the Games would rise again, largely thanks to the efforts of Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who was alive from 1863 to 1937, of France. He was dedicated to the promotion of physical education. The young Baron became inspired by the idea of creating a modern Olympic Games after visiting the ancient Olympic site. In November 1892, at a meeting of the Union des Sports Athletiques, I don't know if that's how you say it. (laughs) Sorry if I offended anybody from 
French-speaking <laughs> countries in Paris. Coubertin pr proposed the idea of reviving the Olympics as an international athletic competition held every four years. Two years later, he got the approval he needed to found the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, which would become the governing body of the modern Olympic Games. So there you have it. So there you go. The first, modern, <laughs> the first modern Olympics were held in Athens, Greece in 1896. In the opening ceremony, King Georgios won, and a crowd of 60,000 spectators welcomed 280 participants from 12 nations, all male, who would compete in 43 events, including track and field, gymnastics, swimming, wrestling, cycling, tennis, weightlifting, shooting, and fencing. Ooh. All subsequent Olympiads had been numbered even when no games take place, as in 1916 during World War I and in 1940 and 1944 during World War II. We will come back to those. We will come back to those years. Very important. Um, the official symbol of the modern games is five interlocking colored rings representing the continents of North and South America, Asia, Africa, Europe, and Australia. Which I feel like that might need updated. That's not enough. <laughs> right? Because isn't Russia in there, too? Yeah, uh, yeah, I feel like we're missing quite a few representations in those yeah. five. Especially because, like, that's a thing that the uh, Olympians get tattooed on them now. Like, I, I just feel like we need to get yeah. it updated. Like, Michael Phelps that's has it. Ryan Lochte has it. That hottie with a body from London who is a swimmer. What's his name? Tom something. Oh, what's his name? Anyway, it's not I'll Tom Hiddleston, but that's who I thought of. <laughs> I'll come back. <laughs> or Tom Holland. I'll come back to the hottie with the body later. Or I'll Tom Hardy. I mean, there's a lot of Tom. <laughs> um, the Olympic flag featured this symbol on a white background. Flew for the first time at the Antwerp Games in 1920. So, the 19th, now we're getting into the T. We're getting into the problems with the Olympics, of which there are any. So I think this episode is just going to give like a historical context about how the Olympics haven't always been uh, kosher and haven't always been PC or, uh, you know, great if you're not a white guy. Yeah. So the 1916 Olympics were supposed to be hosted by the German Empire, which had built an impressive 30,000 seat stadium in Berlin for the event. Sound familiar? But with the outbreak of war in 1914 and the eventual involvement of so many nations who sent athletes to the Olympics, the 1916 games were scrapped. The 1920 games in Antwerp, Belgium, were the first in which excuse me, were the first in which a nation was actively disinvited. Germany was blamed for starting World War I, and even though the country was under a new government known as the Weimar Republic, I know I said that wrong. It's fucking embarrassing. Uh, Belgian, a later French Olympic Olympic officials banned German athletes from participating in both the 1920 and 1924 games. So all of Germany was not allowed at the Olympics in the 20s. 20 years after the canceled 1916 games, Germany was again due to host the Olympics in 1936, this time under the Nazi flag. Ooh. In America... A coalition of Jewish and Catholic groups called on the U.S. Olympic Committee to boycott the Games, but was ignored by the committee president, Avery Brundage, a professed Germanophile. Is, that's, is that the 
the Olympics where Jesse Owens went and ran? I feel yeah. like I've seen yeah, pictures yeah, yeah. of I him think... running in front of Hitler. Uh, yeah, I'm about to get. I'm about to get. There. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Quit reading ahead. <laughs> <laughs> something that happened a million years ago <laughs> instead the 1936 berlin games were allowed to go on amid a nazi regime intent on using sport to demonstrate adolf hitler's theories of racial superiority jesse owens the african-american track and field star famously proved hitler wrong taking home four gold medals in a lesser known victory <laughs> in a lesser-known victory, India's underdog field hockey team also crushed the Germans 8-1 to in the men's final. Pew, 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 pew. Nice. Yeah. So uh, I might look more into Jesse Owens because there's a lot of prominent figures that kept popping up and like prominent events. So we may come back to Mr. Owens at some point during this series. The last time the Olympics were canceled was during World War II. The 1940 Summer and Winter Olympics were both scheduled to be held in Japan, the first non-Western country to host the Games, but Japan forfeited its rights in 1937 when it went to war with China. The 1940 Games were initially rebooked for Helsinki, Finland in the summer in the German town of Garmisch Partenkirchen in the winter. <laughs> but finally canceled in 1939 with Hitler's invasion of Poland. So World War II had a big impact on this ish in the, like through the twenties and forties. London was supposed to host the 1944 summer games, but those were similar summarily canceled due to the ongoing war. Same for the 1944 winter games in Cortina di Ampezzo, Italy. London eventually hosted the 1948 Games, but banned German and Japan Japanese athletes from participation. Whoops. Whoops. Well. Listen to this shit. Since its inception in 1894, the IOC has claimed to be an apolitical and neutral body with the mission to promote international peace and understanding through sport. <laughs> Do we think that? Do you think that? Because your actions are saying that you don't. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but critics like David Gold Goldblatt, professor of history at Pitzer College and author of The Games, A Global History of the Olympics, point to numerous times when Olympic officials turned a blind eye to violent human rights violations in order to ensure the games went on. So now we're going to talk about Mexico City real quick. Mexico City, um, it was 10 days before the 1968 Summer Games were set to open. Government forces opened fire on crowds of unarmed student protesters, killing hundreds, if not thousands, in what became known as the Tla... I sure looked up how to say this. Tlateloco Massacre. We need, we need to put a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode about yeah. guns. Um, Goldblatt says the main theme of Mexico City Games was peace with icons of the dove of peace all over the city. The Mexican government slaughtered hundreds of students and then unleashed a reign of terror and torture and disappearance. All while the games are going on, but the IOC doesn't blink an eye. So I feel like that's that a is... thing we have to go back to and unpack probably in a later episode. This is all, I feel like this is all I... just like a preview for all the things we need to talk about. 
I feel like their definition of apolitical needs some work there because, I mean, you can be apolitical and, and not get involved in actual politics in countries without tacitly, uh, like, I mean, it, it's sort of like just allowing them to do that and not giving them any kind of repercussions. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it would be political to say if you're going to be murdering a bunch of your people, we're not going to have the Olympics here. But that's we're just going to be like, yeah, that's just but no Olympics. If you can't play nice and not kill people, we're not going to hold the Olympics. The end. That's not political. That's just being a person. I mean, yeah. Especially after they excluded countries in the past because of, yeah. I mean, actions that were also at least as political. But yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Likewise, the IOC was initially hesitant to ban apartheid-era South Africa from the 1960 Olympics, but eventually bowed to the pressure of African nations who said they would boycott the games if whites-only South African teams were allowed to play. South Africa was eventually barred from the Olympics from 1960 until 1992 after the fall of apartheid. We should, oh yeah, it's that's one of the things I think we need to be constantly reminded of is that apartheid in South Africa didn't end until the fucking nineties. Like it didn't end until the year I was born. It's crazy. It didn't anyway. end. It was the year before my parents were born until I was born. Like wow. that's thirty two years. That's a long time. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's my parents' whole lifetime until they became parents. Of me. It's just, <laughs> you, you always think of those kinds of laws as being something that w- was a long time ago. And of course, even in this country, like if you look at the history of the country, it's not that big of a section of time. So it's really not that right. long ago. But the 90s is particularly not long ago. Yeah. Like I was alive during the first four years of apartheid in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there, but. But you were alive. Yeah. And okay. Now we're going to talk about. We're going to get more into this one because there was a whole separate article for this that I looked into. In 1972, an armed band of Palestinian terrorists attacked the Israeli compound at the Olympic Village in Munich, Germany, killing two Israeli athletes and holding another nine hostage. In the ensuing standoff, all nine remaining Israeli athletes were murdered. Instead of calling off the Munich Games, Olympic officials continued the competition after a two-day suspension. Oh, let's get more into that Mm -hmm. because that's enough time for grieving and shock. The Munich Olympics opened on August 26, 1972 with 195 events and 7,173 athletes representing 121 countries. Olympics have got a lot bigger since 1896. On the morning of September 5th, Palestinian terrorists in ski masks. That's the picture I sent you. I sent Rosie this terrifying picture. Yeah. We'll put it up on the Instagram. Yeah. It's Palestinian- it is a terrifying picture. And at first you sent it without any information. And I was like, I know. Why? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and also I, I looked at it and I was like, I know that picture, but I can't remember where I know it from. So I'm glad that you did cryptic. tell me. It was super yeah. cryptic, and I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Palestinian terrorists in ski masks ambushed the Israeli team. After negotiations to free the nine Israelis broke down, the terrorists took the hostage- hostages to the Munich airport. Once there, German police opened fire from rooftops and killed three of the terrorists. A gun battle erupted and left the hostages, two more Palestinians, and a policeman dead. 
After a memorial service was held for the athletes at the main Olympic Stadium, International Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage, the same germophile from earlier, ordered that the games continue to show that the terrorists hadn't won. Although the tragedy deeply marred the games, there were numerous moments of spectacular athletic achievement, including American swimmer Mark Spitz's seven gold medals and teenage Russian gymnast Olga Korbut's two dramatic gold medal victories. Okay, yeah, like that's great, but they could have done that in like two weeks. Yeah, like, they could have take waited. Some time. I, I, and I know, I know, it is like a giant undertaking to uh, have the Olympics in the first place, mm-hmm. but I do feel like it's worth it to have to spend more money to, you know, keep people there and all of that and do all the things you need to do in order to let a reasonable amount of time pass, because that's just a travesty. I mean, two days. That's, that's not, and it's since it happened on like with the whole world watching pretty much, because by that point it was probably being televised. At least some of it was, but news would have gotten out about it. Like newspapers were probably, like news reporters are probably there for newspapers. So it was like, if if you tell your employer, I'm going to be at the Olympics, and then they found out this happened, I'm sure they're like, yeah, that's fine. Stay an extra two weeks. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I can't, I don't know. I just feel like there's a real lack of compassion there. Like, sports are important. I think they can bring people together and do a lot of good stuff. They're not more important than human life and the grieving process. Obviously I'm very biased. I'm going to school to talk to people about their feelings. So I'm going to be an advocate for, you know, taking a beat to grieve. I'm just going to go on a limb and say that on this podcast, uh, we can we can say that we respect human life more than other things. And uh, if you don't agree with that, you you might have found the wrong podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have a past anthropologist, scholar, and somebody studying social work. We care a lot about yeah. humans here. <laughs> yeah, we do. I mean, I might not enjoy interacting with all humans all the time, but I do care about humans. Yeah. So yes. Okay, so now we're moving on to the 96 Summer Games in Atlanta, Georgia, which I remember 96 because that's the year Gracie was born. So I remember going to the hospital and holding her. So I do remember at least one little part of it. (laughs) Little four-year-old. A little baby. Okay, the 96 Summer Olympics uh, in Atlanta, Georgia were also allowed to go on after a homemade bomb exploded during a free concert in Centennial Olympic Park. Two people died in the early morning blast and more than 100 were injured, but only a few hours later, the president of Atlanta's Olympic Organization Committee said, the spirit of the Olympic movement mandates that we continue. I don't think so, bruh. Don't worry. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Midway through the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, three pipe bombs went off in the Centennial Olympic Park, killing two people and injuring 111. The man behind the bombing was 29-year-old Eric Rudolph, a terrorist who went on to carry out three more bombings over the next year and a half. In order to catch him, the federal government and law enforcement had to change how they worked. It wasn't until they increased collaboration on domestic terrorism that Rudolph was finally captured nearly seven years later. Whoa. Seven. Holy shit. Yes. 
I, it what? sounds like I I feel like if they put as much energy into their security as they do into making sure that the games go on, then like maybe there wouldn't be this much of an issue. But I I mean like uh, I've planned biggish events. I've been part of that planning process. If there's a real wrench in your plan when something happens, you have to be like, okay, we're thinking on our feet now. We have to like the Olympics are very old. You should have backup plans in case, because obviously stuff like this keeps happening. So, yeah, <laughs> Let, like yeah, it's people aren't gonna decide not to bomb an event if you don't plan for it. You know, like you have mm-hmm. to plan for all of the. This is why we drill for stuff on boats. You know, that's why they go through all this shit with you when you get on a plane about where all the emergency exits are. Like. Yeah, the Olympics need to have oversight about what happens in an emergency. And by the way, you should be paying attention to the safety debriefings on airplanes. Please pay attention to yeah. those. Yeah, please. Those are—they're not doing I, that for their health. They're doing it for yours, actually. <laughs> yeah, and you could take a couple of minutes and, and listen to it because things do change a little bit over time. And mm-hmm. I—I've listened to so many of those goddamn things because I fly across country at least two <laughs> times a year. But I still will put my book down or whatever and listen to it and look at the pamphlet because it's important. So at, yeah, at the so very everyone least, should do that. Pretend like you're listening so that the flight attendants aren't looking at a bunch of people, not looking at them talking about how to save your life. If the plane goes down, which it has, has happened. Yeah. Okay. These things happen. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. So after that this, <laughs> this Rudolph fucker. Rudolph was born was a former military member and a far-right extremist who turned to violence. Rudolph bombed the Olympics because, as he later said in a statement, he wanted to embarrass the United States on the world stage for legalizing abortion. That's why he did that. In January and February of... Yep. In January and February of 97, he bombed an abortion clinic in a gay nightclub in the Atlanta area. Does any of this sound like anything has changed? Does any of this sound different from what's going on in recent years? And those injured 11 people. let people live their lives. If you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. But there are reasons (laughs) some people need them. And leave the gay nightclubs alone. (laughs) Leave the gays alone. Okay, leave leave all the clubs alone, okay? Like, don't bomb (laughs) anywhere. But especially leave the gays alone because they've had so much to deal with. I just watched Gays? a Trixie and Katja video before this, and so I'm really amped up. That'll get you fired up. <laughs> which yeah. one did you watch? It's the newest one. It was just a bunch of random okay. stuff. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, in January of 98, he bombed another abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, seriously injuring a nurse and killing a police officer, making it the first deadly abortion clinic bombing in U.S. history. The entire mindset in the United States was terrorism was not terrorism unless it was foreign, says Malcolm Nance, who has spent decades training local law enforcement in counterterrorism and is the executive director of Tapestry. It was just sort of like domestic terrorism in the United States was so anecdotal that it was to be ignored. So this is when like the U.S. I know we're getting away from the Olympics, but we're going to come back. This is when the U.S. starts switching how they're thinking, and it kind of all culminates in uh, 9-11. They have to be like, okay, we need to start like putting our resources together and thinking about how this stuff um, 
we can all work together on this. But it was a little too little, too late, as it turns yeah. out. All right. So now we're going to talk about Richard Jewell. One of the tragedies of the Atlanta bombing is that security guard Richard Jewell, who discovered Rudolph's bomb and saved lives by starting an evacuation, became the main suspect for the first three months after the bombing. The false theory that Jewell had planted the bomb to make himself seem like a hero made the bombing seem like an isolated incident rather than one in a series of terrorist bombings. So let's get into that. that this sucks. is a very sad story. <laughs> it is early. I, I will say, and it's and it's very sad. It happened to that. I, I can understand the initial question about that. The initial suspicion that it might have been him, because there's a lot of criminals out there who will like quote unquote discover a crime in order mm-hmm. to get it found out because they want to see the reaction. But that's really fucked yeah. up that this happened to him. Early in the morning of July 27th, 1996, amid the hoopla of the Summer Olympics that made Atlanta, Georgia the center of the world for a fortnight, security guard Richard Jewell was working his beat at downtown Atlanta's Centennial Olympic Park when he noticed an olive green backpack beneath a bench. After nobody claimed the pack, Jewell and an associate summoned a bomb squad who confirmed their worst fears. Jewel immediately dashed into the neighboring five-story sound tower and pushed out the technical crew immersed in their jobs before the 40-pound pipe bomb detonated in a deafening blow. One woman was killed by shrapnel, a cameraman suffered a fatal heart attack, and 111 were injured, but Jewel was quickly credited with discovering the deadly device and saving countless more lives. So he acted quick. He got a lot of people out of there. Yeah. Yeah. The once anonymous security guard found his life turned upside down with the crush of attention that celebrated his heroism, though he insisted he, he was simply doing his job. Days later, he found his life turned upside down again, the same devotion to his job having rendered him the FBI's chief suspect in a media punching bag. So I think the media turned on him overnight and then everyone turned on him pretty rapidly. As Jewel was adjusting to life did, as a mayor. Oh, I was just cu- curious. Um, did you find out, did the FBI make it public that he was the number one suspect? We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> We're getting into All it. All right. <laughs> um, as Jewel was adjusting to life as America's hero du jour in late July, the president of Piedmont College informed the FBI of his previous unpleasant experiences with the security guard who was too eager to make campus arrest. So he had a history of, I think he used to be like a regular cop and he pulled a lot of people over for speeding and he like kind of had a history of not getting along with people. And at this point, he was living with his mom to think he was taking care of her. So mm-hmm. all this started to come out. The FBI went digging for more info, soon uncovering his record in Habersham Country County, which included the court-ordered psychological evaluation. We're going to post all these uh, links on our website. Yeah. So if you want to read more into this, you can. On July 30th, after an interview, an early interview with Katie Couric on Today, Jewel received a visit from two FBI agents who said they were making a training video. He agreed to go along with them to the headquarters and consented to a videotaped interview, but grew suspicious after the agents attempted to have him sign a waiver of rights. Meanwhile, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had spilled the beans with an afternoon edition that promoted FBI suspects hero guard may have planted bomb on the front page. 
Jewel returned to a media horde, camped outside his mother's apartment building, only to turn on the TV and see Tom Brokaw announce to the world that he was the lead suspect in the case and likely to be arrested soon. The following day, Jewel helplessly waited outside his building as FBI agents rooted through his apartment for evidence that did not exist. Pictures of the portly, beleaguered security guard sitting on his steps only fueled the ugly media caricature that was beginning to take shape, one that portrayed him as an unmarried 33-year-old who lived with his mother and desperately grab- grasping for a shred of glory. Oh, that so, sucks. Yeah, it was the media built him up and then they immediately took him back down. As Jewel and his mother lived their lives under virtual house arrest, passing notes to one another out of fear that their conversations were being recorded, the legal team went on the offensive, releasing the results of a polygraph test that showed the the suspect's innocence. In late August, during the Democratic National Convention, Jewel's lawyers had Bobby deliver an impassioned plea to the Justice, Justice Department to clear her son of wrongdoing. So Bobby's his mom. As the investigation stretched into its second month with nothing to bolster the government's case, public sentiment sentiment began turning in Jewel's favor. In late September, way after the Olympics are over, Olympics are gone. Like, oh. do we have anything from the Olympics about this? Nope. In late September, 60 Minutes aired a highly sympathetic piece that cut through the caricatures showing Jewel under tremendous strain from the unwanted media attention and the FBI vans trailing him whenever he left his apartment. Still, it would be another month before the FBI offered a lifeline and declared that Jewel was no longer a suspect. So now we're into like October. Oh my no God. one's thinking about the Olympics anymore. This guy was just yeah. a security guard. And he saved lives. Yeah, like he just he did his job. his job. In a press conference held on October 28th, he cited the 88 days he had spent in the public eye as the number one suspect, noting, I hope and pray that no one else is ever subjected to the pain and the ordeal that I have gone through. I thank God it has ended and that you now know what I've known all along. I am an innocent man. This guy's a white guy. This is a white guy, too. Like, imagine if he hadn't been a white guy. Oof. That, I... Yeah. I don't know if he even would have gotten cleared. No. Jewel subsequently launched defamation lawsuits against an array of media outlets for their portrayals of him, with the settlements helping to compensate for legal fees and a year spent without a job. He eventually returned to the law enforcement work he loved in towns throughout Georgia and enjoyed good fortune in the romance department by meeting the social worker Dana, who would become his wife! Some closure came when Eric Robert Rudolph was sentenced to life in prison for the Olympic and other bombings in 2005. Nine years later. Nine years later. And so during that whole time before someone else was sentenced, I'm sure people still thought he was guilty, even though he'd been. I'm sure there's people who still think he's guilty now because they're stupid. One year later, (laughs) one year later, Jewel earned an official commendation from Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue for his heroic actions at Centennial Park that helped stave off an utter catastrophe. He soon was suffering from significant health issues, however, and died in August 2007 of complications from diabetes. So he was only in his 40s, like his very early 40s when he died. Oh, wow. Although his public image continues to trend upward with the 2019 Clint Eastwood movie highlighting his life and a plaque in his honor at Centennial Park, Jewel never shook the feeling that his mistreatment at the hands of the FBI and the media had robbed him of something precious. 
Yeah, I mean, his life, at least for a while there, because like not having a job, having to pass notes and stuff. I'm glad he eventually got married and, you know, like his luck turned a little bit better. But yeah, it affected the whole rest of his life. Poor guy. And then he didn't live very long after that, which is a real shame. So the real bomber didn't become a suspect until 1998. In January of that year, pre-med student named Jermaine Hughes witnessed Rudolph's bombing at the Birmingham abortion clinic and noticed that as people ran toward the scene to help, there was one man, Rudolph, who was walking away. Hughes and a lawyer named Jeff Tickle, (laughs) Tickle, T-I-C-K-A-L, Tickle, (laughs) both followed Rudolph and helped identify his appearance and license plate. The need for federal and local collaboration was not the only lesson learned from the Atlanta bombing. I think it made us also look at the targeting of high-profile events and athletic events. When considering terrorist threats, said Anthony Lemieux, lead researcher of the Transcultural Conflict and Violence Program at Georgia State University. So, like, the Boston bombing, the the Las Vegas concert bombing, the Batman shooting, like... Yeah. Those are all high-profile events and athletic events. It was also a lesson in the dangers of rushing to identify a suspect and ignoring signs of domestic terrorism. Nance notes that the bombs Rudolph planted were similar to those that other far-right domestic terrorists had used. Yay. So, there's that. I haven't seen that movie, but Kathy Bates plays the mom. And she said that they hung out and she got to, you know, get to know her a little bit. And she's very sad about what happened to her son, as she should be. So what kind of prompted us talking about the Olympics was on my Instagram, a bunch of stuff is coming up about how the Olympics aren't all that great. And what we, and I sent this to you, I think, and I said, I think we need to do an episode about the Olympics. And it's about the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. Where, um. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, the 94 Olympics were dubbed the capitalist games for being the first to rely on private financing and corporate sponsorship. (sighs) Which just is a terrible note to start on. It's capitalist yeah. games. Just call it the Hunger Capitalism. Games. I know that wasn't going to happen for another 20 years, but still. Yeah, the capitalism isn't really a good starting point, I think. Yeah. Just for a lot of things. So the Olympics helped to militarize the LAPD, bolstered its ability to wage a war on crime that lasted well into the 90s and accelerated the mass arrest mass arrest and incarceration of african-american men (sighs) so this is this is before all the atlanta stuff we just talked about this is in 84 as los angeles officials prepared for the 84 olympics they were not concerned about the fate of african-american or latino youths living in neighborhoods devastated by an economic recession unemployment rate that had topped 40% or a growing drug epidemic. Rather, they focused on combating the international attention that drug-related crime, rising gang violence had brought to the city. Such attention, officials feared, would ruin the image of Los Angeles as a city of the future and gateway to the Pacific Rim. What? Okay. <laughs> what? 
what? <laughs> what? <sighs> Pacific Rim is a movie about robots. Uh, that's where uh, Rob and Griffin and I, they kept talking about giant robots, but they're saying it in a funny way. They're going, John Wobitz. And I was like, who's John Wobitz? Like, I thought that was an <laughs> actor. <Wobitz. laughs> so every time we watch a movie about robots, we go, that's oh, John Wobitz. <laughs> That's actually Idris Elba's real name. That's why he changed it. Oh my no, god, <laughs> John Wobitz. <laughs> Pacific Rim is a great movie and a great sequel. And when I say great, I don't know if it's that good, but I really enjoy watching it. <laughs> I, I definitely enjoyed them. I, I didn't think yeah. too hard about them, but I enjoyed them. No, you know, no, no. Yeah. yeah, they're great. <laughs> oh, no, it's great. <laughs> I'm losing it. Okay, <laughs> it's okay. Back to the Olympics. <laughs> To ensure that these African-American and Latino youth did not embarrass Los Angeles on the world stage, local lawmakers, national security administrators, and officials from the Los Angeles Police Department invested heavily not in in jobs programs or addiction services, but in get-tough policing and security measures. As a result, for many poor African-American or Latino youths living in the south-central neighborhoods surrounding the Coliseum, the venue which hosted opening and closing ceremonies as well as track and field events, the Olympic Games did not lead to prosperity, but they did lead to the greater po- possibility of police harassment, arrests, and incarceration that came to be associated with the war on drugs. Yay! Yes. We've talked Which a little bit about out, that. Was a failure. Was made to incarcerate people. Yeah. And and punitive measures don't really help with drug epidemics. They just don't. Outreach, decriminalization, harm reduction models, all of that has been shown to be really good in other countries, but the U.S. just does not give a fuck. Social work. Social work. (laughs) It's so important. (laughs) The The LAPD used its federally allocated Olympic budget to buy an arsenal of machine guns, infrared enhancing viewing devices, and a radio system for its SWAT teams. The department also deployed spatially targeted police operations for Olympic security in 1984. To do so, they fast-tracked a new wave of recruits through training to con- conduct what Commander William Rathburn, the LAPD's Olympic coordinator and future director of the gang and drug sweep program, called an unprecedented crime-fighting project. And what do you think about that? I can't tell from your tone. A fast-track <laughs> new wave of recruits. So we've got green officers out there being mm-hmm. told, just fucking round people up. And you know what people, they told them to round up. It wasn't white guys. Oh, so you're, and, just, and- you're just giving these guys just like, uh, unlimited power! There's a really a shocking lack of training that goes into policing as well. It, just oh in general. God. Uh, even in even in like the ideal like quote unquote best of times, it's not good. There, there's no training. It's like here's a gun. Bye. <laughs> like there's nothing. We should do an episode on that. Like what happens in police training? Yeah. <sighs> More than 170 police agencies teamed up to create a crime alert network stretching from Oregon to the Mexican border during the month of the games. So if it's L.A., how big is that? Not that big. It's a pretty big city, but it's not that big. And it's pretty far south as well. So that's like, that's a lot of ground that didn't really need to be covered as well. It's a waste of resources. The entire West Coast. Well, it's not Washington. 
I never remember which one's on top. I have to remember that it says cow. <laughs> it's um, like, it, that, that's funny because I feel like the West Coast is so much easier to remember. Like the East Coast, I, I do not have the geography of the East Coast down at all. And I'm much closer to it. But that's just me. Yeah. There's only three states on the West Coast. So it's like. Right. Yeah, but I don't I, I don't live over there. I haven't driven through yeah. them. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh. And you don't learn about California when you could be learning about pilgrims. Also a great example of American citizenry. Um, The Olympics major crime task force made up of LAPD, Los Angeles Sheriff Department, and FBI officers conducted mass sweeps to rid the Coliseum area of gang members, drug dealers, and homeless residents before the games. Partnering with the Department of Defense, the LAPD hired additional officers at a cost of more than $20 million to, quote-unquote, sanitize the area and keep crime to a minimum during the games. Uh, I'm so angry. <laughs> that's uh, just... I don't know. The so whole bad. crime prevention thing is such a... Uh, that's such a difficult and dangerous thing to approach because how are you preventing crime? Like, what are you doing? Does everyone understand what preventing crime really is? Or is it just kind of up to your own discretion? You're preventing anything from happening by putting them away, but you could. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's, there's three black guys standing on a corner. So I'm going to take, you know, take them into custody to prevent crime. This is now a dangerous situation. According to me, a white man. (laughs) Yeah. These resources and tactics didn't disappear when the athletes left town. They would continue to be used for aggressive policing and punitive policies in the city's most vulnerable communities in the years that followed. On February 6, 1985, an LAPD SWAT team used a military-grade V-100 tank-like vehicle received from the Olympics and equipped with a 14-foot battering ram to smash down the wall of a suspected quote-unquote rock house. The officers found two women and three children eating ice cream, no guns, and a small amount of marijuana, and no cocaine. You just eat an ice cream with your mom, and then the army's there. Like... I, and, and what had they done before that to try to investigate this house? Anything? Or did you just go in guns blazing? Come on. Uh, three years later, the LAPD engaged in massive anti-gang sweeps known as Operation Hammer. Thor would never. Gross. Which led, which led to the arrest of 24,684 mostly African-American youths, often without cause, and involved debt detaining them i almost said detonating detaining them for 24 hours in a specially constructed holding facility at the coliseum by the early 1990s black men had routine contact with the criminal justice system a study by the los angeles county adult detention center found that nearly a third of black men ages 20 to 29 in the county had been arrested at least once in 1991 Some observers have even linked the bubbling discontent over this discriminatory criminal justice system, which spilled over in the 1992 Los Angeles Rebellion rebellion to the 94, the 84 games. So, the Olympics aren't great. And as it turns out, they're not great even now. (laughs) This also came up because of all of the... Hold on, hold on, Hope. 
Tio, let's digest everything we just talked about before we go on to what's going on right now. <laughs> the Olympics are rigged. <laughs> that makes me so sad. It makes me so sad. Ugh. What are you feeling? I... I'm not surprised. I'm upset. That's this kind of my my feeling about cops and capitalism and all that. I guess. I I really don't like how unsurprised I am by this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This makes sense. Again, it's a lot of I, like. It it feels like the Hunger Games where there's a lot of like show and like performance and glitzy shit happening but then like if there's all this really awful shit also happening at the same time in tandem yeah and it's all i yeah i don't i don't know i don't know what to say about it because it's it's very i i could definitely see some people saying oh well the olympics didn't have anything to do with the policing strategies it's like well they could have like, uh, like the Olympic Committee. Yeah, it, it, they funded it. Like they absolutely yeah. had something to do. Well, with like, it. like, they, like you could. Yeah, well, yeah, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I could, I guess I could see some people saying that the Olympic Committee didn't cause the police officers in the area to do blah 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 blah. But there's also, you, you know, it's going to lead to there if you just look at cause and effect and history and. Yeah. Yeah. It's and they didn't uh, they didn't stop it. They didn't yeah. step in. And I think when you have that much power being you in can't... the Olympics, you have the right to be like you have the responsibility. Yeah. To be like, yo, don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah, because all that. this shit wouldn't be happening if the Olympics didn't go there, then it is incumbent upon the Olympics to try to mitigate it and it's just it it just i know it needs to keep oh it's raining i know it needs to keep happening but whenever i get to see my privilege in the mirror i'm just like oh man that sucks like seeing how much i love the olympics and how I didn't take them seriously, but I would definitely set aside time to be like, no, I'm watching the Olympics right now. Goodbye. Like, don't talk to me. <laughs> but just like. The the one year that I was actually like close to the, I was close enough to the Olympics that if I had, I don't know, if I had somehow gotten the money together, I, pro- I probably could have gone was when they were in Vancouver, uh, Vancouver, mm. Canada. <gasps> because that was a great Olympics. Oh my god! <laughs> That's funny because from the perspective of the the town that I was in, uh, Bellingham, Washington, like they had expected to get a lot of business because we were pretty close, and they bunch of businesses prepared for getting a lot of business, and then it just kind of didn't happen. And so, some of the like snowier events got rained out, and like it, it kind of like in my memory, it was kind of a flop. So I guess I'm glad it was nice to watch on TV, but. Yeah, (laughs) I remember. So what I remember from the Vancouver Olympics, that was 2010. So I was a junior in high school. My boyfriend, my high school boyfriend just broken his neck. So we were just watching the Olympics because we couldn't go anywhere. We're just watching the Olympics. (laughs) 
that was the year. So they were in Vancouver and they had this like whole big opening ceremony. And one of the things like didn't come up. And the next night they had a lumberjack come out and fix it as like a show. And I was like, Oh, look how innovative that is. It's so cute. I love it so much. And they brought out like all these indigenous people like of Canada to have like those. They, they were like the main event of like the opening ceremony. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, did you put on indigenous people to perform as entertainment? Were you actually honoring indigenous people or were they just there to be like, eh, we Interesting. Don't yeah, I, I wonder what the perspective of, of the indigenous people involved and in, in, in the community think about that now. Maybe I so I remember this. My mom and my little sister were watching the Luge event and we were watching Canada play, play, go, run, <laughs> do it. <laughs> we were watching Canada Luge and the the bobsled flipped over and they were all on their heads. They had helmets on, but they were rioting down on their heads and the team colors were red. And so we were like, oh is that is that uniform or is that blood like what's happening because it's live we're watching it live and we're like oh my god what are we witnessing right now they were fine because they all got up and walked away but we were just sitting there like oh it must have been terrifying because you wouldn't just stop going if you flipped over if you had that much momentum i didn't even think about that oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what is they must have had some kind of facial protective gear going on too because Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But they were riding like that for a really long time. And the camera just kept following them. It was so surreal. Uh, The hot British swimmer is Tom Daly. He has since married a man. (laughs) He is very attractive. Um, But yeah. Um, So I remember Vancouver in 2016. That's when we were uh, on the long voyage on Niagara for like two months. So every time Mm -hmm. we would go to a bar they'd just be blasting the olympics except for whenever you're underway for that long billy and chris actually took me to buffalo wild wings because they wanted to watch the patriots game everyone else was in a bar that was full of taxidermy and i I couldn't go in because you guys left like right before i got back and then i was like i'm just gonna stay (laughs) i was i I was cranky it was better that i didn't go (laughs) they like i there's been a few times when I've been swooped and carried out somewhere. And that was one of those times they like each took me by the arm. And were like, come on, let's go. And I was like, okay, you're my bosses. I'm not going to say no. <laughs> like, and we went to Buffalo Wild Wings and they were just Buffalo Wild Wings has a lot of TVs. But if you haven't seen a screen in like a month and you go, I was That's so distracted. I was like, there's so many screens. I can't look away. And it was all Olympics. <laughs> um, and then I actually got to go to Canada for a little bit what and i think that's when they were was that rio that was rio was 2016 i think so i think so yeah so i just it oh i have so many nice memories of the olympics and now they're all getting dashed it's like they can't coexist together i can't think about how awesome i thought they were in like these like athletic feats and like seeing michael phelps win in the relay by a nanosecond because he's got gigantic arms he's a mental health uh he's a therapy advocate now he endorses therapy he's like yeah he talks about how he really needed it after the olympics were over that's another thing we talk about what happens to olympians when they're done being olympians because a lot of them are like not that old they're not that old yeah 
you know Sean Johnson's only like 4'11"? That little gymnast from the early aughts? You'd recognize her. She's a little blonde. She's Pregos, and she's all belly. (laughs) She's like, like, whoa. And she's dating this. I think he's a hockey player or an NFL player. He's ginormous. (laughs) I know we're getting off topic, but I really... uh, So some things we're probably going to talk about are all the things that we mentioned throughout the course of this podcast, but also... There was an illegal ice skating jump that happened, I think, in the early 80s or 90s at some point where a jump got banned and it was a black lady doing it. And there was discussion about is this banned because of the jump or because a black lady invented the jump? Yeah, that Um, feels like racism. We can talk about Tonya Harding. Because that was at the Olympics, right? Yep, yep, that was the Olympics. And she also had an interesting trajectory in general. There's uh, there's mm-hmm. a podcast called You're Wrong About that does, it's either one episode or two about Tanya Harding and about kind of the truth of the story and about her not fitting in with the whole look of the Olympics because she was yeah like considered white trash or something. She had My an athletic headphones. build. These headphones are dying built- too. Okay, great. Just so you know. uh, okay, and then we're going to talk about, eventually we will get to the discrimination of the 2021 Olympics, but I think we need to let them play out a little bit before we can talk about them. So Yeah, there's we'll be too doing much our other own, stuff to wade through. <laughs> we'll be doing our own Olympic coverage as it's happening, and you'll probably get it about a week later. <laughs> um, but Rosie's headphones are dying, and I'm sweaty. So we'll see you guys next time, and uh, maybe... Just think about this stuff when you're watching the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I am Rosie and facts matter. I am hoping now that you know better, be better.